watched any amount of television as a child or you had kids that were born in the 70s or after, um, there's a pretty high chance that you watched a lot of Sesame Street. Most episodes of Sesame Street, if not all of them, contained a lesson for kids. Often they were how to play fairly or how to get along with one another. Most things were not controversial at all, just good lessons for children to learn. But there were some episodes that dealt with more serious issues, more adult issues. After the events of September 11, 2001, the producer showed Elmo being frightened at a fire that was started in his house. And so he takes a trip to the fire station where the, the firefighters tell him how brave he was. Another Sesame Street uh, episode dealt with racism and how the color of one's skin or fur should never be something that divides us. Yellow birds, brown bears, purple monsters all need to appreciate each other's differences and see them as valuable. A few years ago, Sesame Street debuted a character with autism. They did a wonderful job explaining what autism was to children and to show them that kids are all different and kids even with special needs should be treated as equals and loved and cared for. But no show captured the emotions as an episode from 1983. Not long after the first episode of the season that year was to air, um, one of the characters, um, Will Lee, he played Mr. Hooper, died. And the producers were faced with the dilemma of what to do. This character who was here for years is now gone. And so they spent time with child psychologists to try to figure out what the best way to address this with these children would be. Well, they could have said that Mr. Hooper got sick and died, but they didn't want kids to, to think that if they got sick, that they were automatically going to die. They could have said that he was just old, but then kids would look at their parents or their grandparents and think, well, if just because you're old, you're going to die soon. That's not true. They could have ignored it altogether, but the kids would have seen right through that. They ultimately decided to address it truthfully with millions of children who were watching it, and that episode aired on Thanksgiving Day to ensure that the parents would be there with their children. And on this episode, Big Bird makes drawings of all his friends on Sesame Street. He drew a picture of Gordon, of Bob, of Luis, and Maria, and then lastly, he draws a picture of Mr. Hooper. And he's excited, and he says, I'm going to give this to Mr. Hooper when I see him next. And then one of the adults said, Big Bird, remember that we told you Mr. Hooper died? Big Bird says, oh yeah, I forgot. Well, I'll give it to him when he comes back. And one of the adults puts his arm uh, around Big Bird and said, Big Bird, Mr. Hooper isn't coming back. Why not, Big Bird asked. The adult responded, Big Bird, when people die, they don't come back. The episode probably impacted parents as much as it did to children. The emotional tie of losing a loved one hurts. And to be honest with you, death isn't something that we like to talk about. Because it's difficult and we know that when someone is gone, they're not coming back. Most of us have been there. We've sat next to someone who was on their last few weeks or few days or few hours. We've kissed our loved ones goodbye. Because we know that at least this side of heaven, and this is the hope that Christians have within us, is that we will see them one day. But the truth of the matter is this side of heaven we won't. They're gone. We'll never hear their voice again. Never feel the touch of their hand. Never get to, to say I love you one more time. 
but you're in a Christian church today. And if you've never thought about this whole event called Easter, I'm glad that you're here. Uh, for most people, Easter is simply about candy and simply about maybe doing some religious rituals or whatever that it may be. So if you're new to Christianity or new to the church, you may be wondering why I opened up with Sesame Street for one thing. I do like Sesame Street. But you're wondering why is he talking about this? This is so morbid. No one wants to hear this. This is the heart of what the Christian gospel is. The truth is that every one of us will die. Every single person who's lived before us has died. But only one has conquered the grave. Only one has risen from the dead. Only one has said to death and destruction, no, I still win. Only one. And if you're trying to figure out what Easter is all about, you may have some notion of this religious duty that we feel like we may have. Today's busier than normal. But you may say, well, wait, Christmas seems more important. We, we don't have any Easter trees. We don't have Easter bunnies hopping around. We have Christmas trees at Christmas. We sing Christmas hymns and Christmas songs. But what about Easter? The truth of the matter is, though, Easter is the height of the Christian calendar. Now, if you're wondering why, if you're wondering why we talk about death and why we talk about our Savior, the one that we worship, why he would die, I hope I answer that for you today. I hope that I, I give you some sense of hope that, that death is not all that there is. And for the Christian, death actually helps us. Not that we're seeking to die, not that we're looking to go jump off buildings and jump off bridges, and we're not eagerly awaiting the day that we die, but the truth of the matter is that we will never experience sickness, we will never experience loss, pain, and suffering, because Christ has promised us a better future. And this is what Easter is. Easter is about Jesus who died in our place. Now it seems so unfair to us. It does to me, uh, at least at first blush, to think that Jesus, who is fully God and fully human, perfectly sinless, would have to die in order to make us right with God. But the truth is that God hates sin, just as you do. Deep down in every single one of us, we know that we hate sin. Now, now we do like it, our flesh craves it, but what do you feel when someone sins against you? Do you hate it? Are you angry? Are you upset? Of course you are. Sin must be dealt with. God, God cannot be in the presence of sin. Sin must be dealt with. It must be destroyed. It must be defeated. So then the question you may be asking is, what is sin? Simply put, sin is rebellion against God. Now most of you would say, well, wait a minute, hold on. No. I don't consider myself a, a, a re rebel to God. I haven't staged any kind of coup against a pastor or a church. I haven't marched into a church and taken it over. I haven't rebelled. But sin has been around almost since the beginning. The, the honest answer is that, yes, sin has been around. Rebellion has been around since God told Adam and Eve, do not touch that tree. You can eat anything else that you want, but don't do this one thing. And you know what they did? Exactly the same thing that you and I would do. They ate of it. Even without knowing a thing in the Bible, you know what happens. The first two humans do exactly what God says not to do. And they were forced to leave the perfection of their home and the garden and instead labor in both work and childbirth. 
And that conscious decision to disobey God after all that he had given him, he gave them life, he gave them nutrition, he gave them everything that they needed. And even after they sinned, what did he do? He gave them the ability to clothe themselves. After all of that, you may be thinking right now, and it's a good question, well, that's not fair. Why am I the recipient of the punishment that Adam earned himself? Why should I suffer for that? Well, basketball is on, the final four started last night. And what happens when a player on one team fouls another player? Player gets counted as a foul, right? But have you ever seen the bottom of the screen when it says team fouls? One player's mistake affects the rest of the team. And Adam is our head. He's our representative. So when Adam sins, it gets punished. The rest of the team, humanity, gets punished. But the reality is this. If you're fighting against that, the truth of the matter is how long would you have lasted in the garden? I wouldn't have lasted very long. I would have done the exact same thing that Adam did. I would have disobeyed God, and I know that because I disobey God daily. I break God's law daily. But I've met people, and maybe you have too, who say that they're good people, that they haven't sinned, that they haven't really done anything wrong. Eh, yeah, I've lied. I've never killed anybody. See, the problem is they're judging based on their definition of what is good, not God's. The truth is we've all told lies. We've all had thoughts that we wouldn't want broadcast to other people. We've all been angry with someone, and Jesus says that if you look with lust, you're just as guilty as someone who commits the act of adultery. Jesus says that if you are angry with your brother, you are just as guilty to God as if you actually went and killed that person. See, we look at the actions. We look at the outside, but God sees our motives. God sees our thoughts. God sees what darkness is inside of our hearts. So in your heart, you know that you've disobeyed God. You know that you've done things that you shouldn't. It's not a popular word today, but the truth is that we have all sinned. And God, who is the creator of everyone and everything, has demanded that his creation live and worship and think in a certain way. And anything that deviates from that is sin. It's rebellion. But God knew the end of the story even before we stepped foot on this planet. He created us knowing that we would be rebels against him. And the best explanation that I can give to you this morning is children. Children are little rebels, aren't they? And not talking about Maryville High School rebels. I'm talking about your own little children that run around. My own children that run around. I knew, I knew before we had our kids what they would do. I knew that it wouldn't take long for them to start stirring up trouble. I knew that it wouldn't take long before the words, no, or I hate you, I have two adopted sons, or you're not my real dad. I knew that that would happen. And yet my wife and I still brought those children into our home. I knew that with our daughter, I knew that she would one day come and she would rebel against me, she would disobey me, and guys, I haven't even hit puberty with my kids yet. We're still waiting for that to come. So youth pastor for six years, I know that's not easy. You still, you knew that. Each and every one of you knew what your kids would do, that they would disobey you, they would disrespect you, they would do things that you tell them not to do, but yet you had them anyway. 
Why? Because you love them. You care about them. And the same thing it is, so we wonder, well, why would God create us at all? If he knew that, he was, uh, that we were going to rebel against him, that we were going to sin against him. Because it shows his glory even more in his rescuing of rebels. God loved his children so much that he sent his son Jesus to die for them. Those who repent of their sin, turning from their sin, and putting their trust in Jesus as Savior makes you an adopted son and daughter of God. You were a rebel, now you're an heir. And because of Adam's sin, we deserve to suffer punishment. And you know this, having kids that a good parent would never let their children get away with doing bad things. God would never let us uh, run free in our sin because that would go against his character. So the only right thing for God to do would be to punish us all. But instead, he sent his son Jesus, his perfect, unblemished, spotless lamb son Jesus to die in our place. Jesus came to live a perfect life. He fulfilled all of the Old Testament law so that his righteousness could be given to us as adopted sons and daughters, brothers of Jesus. And he died so that we wouldn't have to suffer God's wrath. Church, when we talk about the gospel, this is what we're talking about. How to be reconciled with God. For years, I wondered about this idea of reconciliation, but now it consumes me. This is all that I think about, is how in the world would God love me so much that he would do this for me? An undeserving wretch as I am. I was once God's enemy, and now I've been made his friend and his son. Christian, have you ever thought of yourself like that? Have you ever considered that you have worth in being born, every single human being, no matter who they are, what they are, how big they are, how little they are, how smart they are? Every single human being is created in the image of God, so every single human being has worth. But do you know, Christian, that your worth is not even in that anymore? Your worth is found in Christ? You have infinite worth. So listen, if all of those claims are right, that Jesus is actually fully God, that he's fully man, that I'm a sinner, and that he died to make me right with God, what does that mean for me and what does that mean for you? Contrary to what we hear from people who teach religious pluralism, that there are all roads lead to God. I've heard someone describe it as a bicycle wheel, that all the spokes lead to the center and God's somewhere at the center, so it doesn't matter what path you choose, they all lead in the same direction. The truth of the matter is there are only two religions in the world. There's only two. There are, are, is one path that leads to destruction. That's our flesh. That's man's way. That's our desires, our wants, our passions. It's popular. It involves no sacrifice or rules. You get to make up your own rules as you go along. It sounds really nice. Well, at least until someone who's bigger and stronger than you has different rules. Who wins that? This is the way of the world. But the other option is to surrender everything that you are to the God of the universe. That means what you want no longer matters because you are no longer living for yourselves. You have purpose beyond momentary satisfaction. And all this is very important because without understanding why Jesus died, you won't understand why the resurrection matters at all. And if you miss these things, you'll miss out on the meaning of the entire gospel. 
all of this is at the center of the gospel message. So digging into Luke 24, what is the context of these verses? Well, if you flip back, Jesus has just been beaten and crucified. His body was wrapped and placed in a tomb. And in chapter 23, we see that the the women had brought spices to put on Jesus' body as part of the burial process. A mix of tradition and common practice, Jesus' body would have been already been wrapped in linen and covered in myrrh and aloes. His living body, if you remember, had been anointed already, but his corpse had not yet been. It was a week ago from this point that Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, anointed Jesus in her home. Now Jesus was dead and his body needed to be treated. All, all of this, these anointing and the, 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 the perfumes that are used, all of it was to hide the odors of death and decay. One mortician said that a decomposing body smells like very old chicken mixed with hot garbage. Not pleasant. So you can imagine, in these burial tombs, the families would all be buried together. So you can imagine that, that when someone would die, they'd have to open the tomb and they'd have to go in and smell all of that. So what they would do is they would coat the body in spices and those, those aloes and the oils to, to hopefully hide that decomposing stench that, that would be present in any decaying body. So these women arrive ready to cover his body, and they see something that surprised them. The stone that was rolled in front of the grave and the the soldiers that were uh, sent there to guard the grave against grave robbers to just for this purpose because they were afraid that people would say, well, Jesus rose from the dead when all they did was come and steal the body, but you have these two soldiers that are knocked out. And so these women would have come and said, well, someone stole Jesus' body. There's no way. The man that they devoted their life to was murdered in front of their eyes. They they saw his body prepared for burial. And they saw him being placed in the tomb. They saw the stone being rolled over. They saw the, the soldiers appointed to sit there and watch. And then Matthew 28 records what happened to the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow, and for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. And I don't mean to be trite, but if heaven has a film room, this is one that I'd love to see. Just the the angel coming down and the guys just passing out, kind of like those goats that when they get scared, they just lock up and fall over. These soldiers became like dead men. And then once the guards came to, they ran to the chief priest to tell them what happened. It says this, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has spread among the Jews to this day. The women were stunned at what they saw, an empty tomb. But two angels then come and tell them that Jesus is not dead, but he is alive. The angels even said, remember the prophecies that Jesus himself said. Now, if you can remember, 
the week before the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ was a very strange week, wasn't it? Full of ups and downs for his followers. They arrived in Jerusalem for the Passover and people celebrated Jesus by giving him a royal donkey and throwing their clothes on the ground as he rode by. The people treated Jesus in many ways as their new king. Then Jesus predicts that one of his disciples would betray him. Judas then betrays Jesus for a month's salary. And then Jesus spends a day with the disciples on the Mount of Olives. The next day, Jesus is arrested and Peter denies even knowing him. And then the beatings and the crucifixion happen. His followers are there watching everything that's happening and they're unable to do anything about it. And then they arrive to the tomb where Jesus is buried and he's gone. And in verse 26 of our, of our text today, we see one of the most profound statements ever recorded in the Bible. The angel says, he is not here but he is risen. For a Christian, this is where our hope lies. Outside of a risen Savior, we are the biggest fools in the world because we worship a dead man, and a dead man can't do anything good for us. So why does this matter? You may be thinking, well, yeah, Jesus was a historical person. Yeah, there are stuff written about him here, but there's stuff written about him in other books of antiquity. Why does this matter? There's two common ways, and I reject both of these, but there's two common ways to think about religion today. Either all paths lead to the same place, or all religions generally say the same thing. But neither of those can be true because of how many contradictions they all have. In fact, the Bible is full of claims that say that Jesus is the only way to salvation, and that only way to know God is through Jesus as your Savior. There is no other way according to Scripture. And so the question that lies before us today is one with great implications. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Well, we know that from our lives and common sense that once someone dies, they're not coming back. But the Bible says that Jesus was different. It says that he lived, he, was, he died, he was buried, and then he rose again. Now, how can that be? Every reputable writing from those who recorded the events of the day would say that Jesus existed. That he was a real person who, who taught in modern-day Israel. They admit that he was crucified on a cross by decree of Roman authorities. Even theologians and skeptics who are not friendly to the Christian faith admit that the crucifixion and burial of Jesus is well-attested. We also know from Scripture that the tomb was empty in three days after his body was placed in it. Some people say that it maybe was just a hallucination, that yes, this is what the disciples thought happened, but that they were so emotional from all of the, the events of the previous week that they just couldn't think straight. Others have said that it never really happened, that it was closer to a, a story that some of you, I'm sure, have told, where your fish keeps getting bigger every time you tell the story. The question that I'd have for that, though, all but one of the disciples was willing to die for this. How many millions of Christians have been willing to die for this? I can tell you for a fact, I'm not willing to die for a lie. I'm not willing to die for something that I don't believe in with all of my heart and my mind and my soul. Paul, the apostle who never met Jesus until after Jesus' death and resurrection said this in Acts 17. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. 
And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now why this matters is that this, if it happened, if Jesus truly rose from the dead, then we must believe everything else that he said. We must believe what he says about life, eternity, and how we can be saved from the wrath to come. So all these questions keep compounding. And the question now is for you to answer. What must you do to be saved? What must you do to be saved? First, you need to understand that you need to be saved from your sins. You have to understand it. You you can't come to Christ in repentance and faith if you don't first understand that you need it at all. Your sin has separated you from God. We all deserve punishment because we've sinned against an eternal and infinite God, and our punishment should be eternal and infinite as well. Second, you need to see that only God could pay the penalty that we owed. Only Jesus, who is perfectly God, could pay our penalty, and only a man, also Jesus, could die in our place. Jesus said that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one can come to God except through him. Third, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. God has done the work. We have nothing to offer. There's nothing that we can do to earn the favor or or the blessings of God on our own. We're not good enough. We're simply not good enough. There's nothing that we could do to please him except for what we have in Jesus. The first Adam, the one in the Garden of Eden, sinned and died. There was a moment when he stopped breathing. There was a moment when his heart stopped pumping blood and he died. Adam was our representative in terms of our sinfulness, but for the Christian, we've been given a new representative. 1 Corinthians 15, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, Christ, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that, that is first, but the natural, then the spiritual, The first man, Adam, was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man, Jesus, is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born of the image of the man of dust, we also shall bear the image of the man of heaven. Listen, Jesus did what Adam couldn't. Jesus did what Abraham couldn't. Jesus did what Moses couldn't. And guess what? Jesus did what you could not do. Jesus did what you can't do. We try, and just like Adam, we feel the conviction and we we try to hide because we know we're not good enough. We try to shift the blame. The only hope for you today is to give up whatever it is that you're holding back that's pulling you away from Christ and seeing Jesus as he, you need to see him. Your desires, your wants, your passions, all of those things must be brought to the throne of God and said, here, I surrender all of this. Nothing is meaningful anymore except for what I have in Christ. That song that we sing, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. And for the Christian, that is our cry. Nothing to the cross I, nothing that I, that I bring except to the cross I cling. The only hope for us is that we give up everything that's holding us back. And listen, Jesus did not die. And unfortunately, I think this may be messages somewhere heard today. Jesus did not die to give you a better life. He did not die so that you would have a more enjoyable or fruitful life in your own terms. We know this is true because there's so many Christians who are poor and dying for the faith. Jesus didn't die to give you a better life, but rather he came to give you an eternal life. 
peace with God. And he rose again to defeat death and the grave. Now, if you're not a Christian, if you're not a believer, if you haven't followed after Christ, or if you're just exploring what Christianity says, please understand that this is the sum of everything that we hold dear. Without this truth of Christ rising from the dead, we are hopeless. We're fools to be pitied. Muhammad lived and he died. Buddha lived and he died. All the great Old Testament prophets lived and died, but one person lived, died, and rose again. And it is through that person, Jesus Christ, that we can find life. As the great reformer Martin Luther wrote in a hymn from 1524, Christ Jesus lay in death's strong bands for our offenses given. But now at God's right hand he stands and brings us life from heaven. Therefore let us be joyful and sing to God right thankfully loud songs of hallelujah. It was a strange and dreadful strife when life and death contended. The victory remained with life, the reign, death was ended. Holy scripture plainly saith that death is swallowed up by death, his sting is lost forever. Then let us feast this Easter day on Christ, the bread of heaven. The word of grace hath purged away the old and evil leaven. Christ alone our souls will feed. He is our meat and drink indeed. Faith lives upon no other. Our king is no longer in the tomb. He's risen. He's risen indeed. And this is the question before us today, Easter Sunday. Do you know the real Jesus? Not your buddy. Not your BFF, not your occasional friend, not the genie that you try to call when you need help every once in a while. No, do you know the real Jesus, the one who was, is, and forever will be God? The one who willingly laid down his life, suffering unbelievable pain to ensure that his people will be saved. Do you know him? Do you know the one who became man in order to live a perfect life, free from sin, so that he could fulfill all righteousness because you and I couldn't? Do you know him? Do you know the one who is coming back to gather up his bride and renew the earth and bring us back to the garden? Do you know him? Do you know the one who has done and will do the one thing that Adam failed at doing? Do you know the one who will crush the head of the serpent and defeat sin and evil once and for all? Do you know him? You may know of him. You may know about him. But do you really know him? My prayer for you today is that you don't leave without giving your life to Christ. You don't need to repeat a prayer. You can. You don't need to walk an aisle. You can. You don't need to come talk to me. You can. What you need to do is talk to God. Tell God that you're broken over your sin. Tell him that you are, are aware of what you've done against him and you've broken his laws. Tell him. Tell him how you feel about your sin and ask him, plead with him, beg him to forgive you. And, and you know what happens? You know what God will do? If you confess your sin, he will forgive you and he will make you one of his own. This is the promise of Easter. That we are not worshiping a, a, a dead man. We are worshiping a king that is alive and that will one day come back and make all things new and all wrongs will be made right. And we will suffer from the effects of sin no more. Our king is no longer in the tomb. He is risen. He 